1: Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it.
2: Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your
0: podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Thursday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up later in the program, remote learning and its effect on black and brown students with special needs. That's coming up a little bit later. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. Emil Moffitt reports dozens of demonstrators gathered outside the state capitol earlier today to protest against the Republican bills that, quote, add restrictions to voting. Now, that includes an end to no excuse absentee voting, a reduction in early voting opportunities and an ID requirement for vote by mail. Now, Emil will have more later today during All Things Considered, hosted by Jim Burris. By the way, there are 75 pieces of voting-related legislation that's been filed. Republicans are pushing for more restrictions while Democrats want more options. And If you want to know what this is all about, head over to WABE.org, and reporter Christopher Austin has a guide with information on many of these measures. In other news, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp says it will probably be months, months, plural, before most of Georgia's teachers are fully vaccinated against COVID-19.
3: This is not going to be a quick process. I mean, if if they happen to take Pfizer or Moderna, they're going to have to, you know, one of the vaccines wait a month to get the second dose. Well, you know, by the time we do all the teachers that are out there, it's going to be summer break.
0: And I was the governor at a press conference yesterday. More information is expected today on when the next phases of the vaccinations will take place. Now, the governor also added he is not happy with the Biden administrations, with the way they have, they're distributing the $1.9 trillion COVID-19 relief package to the states. The plan will give aid to states that took up bigger financial loss during the pandemic.
3: We've made tough choices on, you know, many areas of state government to be financially viable to get us through times like this and then reward states that haven't. You know, I think it's a very unlevel playing field.
0: And so the governor did send a letter to Georgia's congressional delegation encouraging them to push for changes in the relief package or to vote against it. Now, this comes as more than 2,000 new coronavirus cases were recorded here in Georgia just yesterday. And now here's your total. That total number is 810,473 Georgians who have contracted the virus since last March. And Georgia is now nearing 15,000 recorded deaths. As it stands right now, 14,882 Georgians have died. As always, we get our information from the Georgia Department of Public Health. Now coming up moments now. We'll hear how the Chris 180 organization is helping people who are experiencing anxiety and depression during this pandemic. And also they have a new initiative called the Chris 180 Cure Violence Program. That's coming up next. This is Closer Look. <laughs> And closer look continues now here on ninety point one WABE. This is Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Cont. Next week, guess what? It will be one year when the first coronavirus case, cases were detected in Georgia, and soon afterwards, as we all remember, Georgia went on a little mini shutdown. Well, a year later, it's not surprise as several studies and reports suggest that so many of us, so many folks are suffering from COVID-19 related psychological distress, such as anxiety or even depression. Well, right here in Metro Atlanta, the Chris 180 organization is increasing its efforts to serve families and individuals throughout the area. So joining me now to talk more about this is Ashley Dennis Silas. She's the clinical director for Chris 180s Counseling Center, Gwinnett. And Alfred Garner II, he's the director of the Zone 3 community initiatives and the manager of something new we're going to learn about, Chris 180s Cure Violence Atlanta program. Ashley and Alfred, thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate it.
3: Thank you for having us. Thank
0: you for having me. All right, you all right over there, uh, Alfred? I'm well. All right, <laughs> doing all right. Like those glasses?
1: <laughs> Thank you.
0: Look like you're about to fly a plane, folks. You can't see Alfred, <laughs> but he's got these cool aviator glasses on. Uh, let's let's begin with here, uh, Ashley and, and Alfred, because you know I, I ask a lot of people these questions now because we're we're basically a year later. Um, how would you all assess? Whoa. <laughs> How would you all assess um, the services that people have needed? I imagine you've seen an increase in the need. And, And Ashley, I'll start with you.
3: Yeah, we've definitely seen an increase in the need for services. I would say, say 2019, we maybe were getting two or three calls a day in Gwinnett for for referrals. Mm -hmm. At the height of the pandemic, we were getting around five to 10 calls every day from referrals. And these are referrals that are self-referrals. So Mm -hmm. people kind of um, acknowledging that they need some additional support or support for their family members. We were getting referrals from hospitals or crisis lines where people are calling People who have heard about us or seen us on the news, so just just a lot of different places, but definitely seeing that people are acknowledging a greater need for support. Mm-hmm.
0: Alfred, I imagine you've seen the same thing as well.
1: Absolutely, um, we ended up identifying a need just for having providing at a minimum food access. So mm-hmm. from this summertime, we went from around two fifty, going door to door, having wellness checks, and identified where the need really was in our target area. Um, up until now, we're almost anywhere between 500 to 800 deliveries a week. A so, week. Yeah, so it's, it's there's a challenge out there.
0: Yeah. Alfred, let me stay with you um, because I actually talked about up in the Gwinnett area, Gwinnett area, and you are primarily, are y'all over in the West End, west side of town?
1: Uh, like literally across the train tracks in a neighborhood planning unit D. Mm. So we're looking at um, right in, Pittsburgh community, Mechanicsville, Summerhill, Peoples Town, Capitol Gateway, Dare Park. Mm,
0: yeah, I also want to stay with you for a second, Alfred, because for folks that may not be familiar with Chris One Hundred and Eighty, let's give them a snapshot of what you all the services you all have been providing for such a for such a long time now.
1: So everything that we do is centered around mental health. You know, we find that. That's the root of a lot of challenges that we see with individuals, families, and the community. Uh, For the initiative that we've been doing in Zone 3, it's been centered around trauma and trauma in regards to gun violence. So we have been fortunate to be able to provide jobs for folks that would live experience that can aid in helping address gun violence in this particular area. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
3: and if I go ahead, I'm sorry, if I may add um, to what Alfred was saying just about what the organization offers, we have nine counseling centers across the Metro Atlanta area. We're in about 65 schools providing um, mental health counseling. We have um, adoptions and foster care programs. So, exactly like Alfred said, definitely addressing mental health and all of the factors that contribute to the challenges that people have in there.
0: Well, Ashley, let me get this question to you, because then in the height of the pandemic, y'all had to shift. Would, did all those centers, did they remain open? Did you have to close for some time?
3: Yeah, well, some um, of us were able to continue to go into the office. Some of us were not able to go into the office, but what we really were privileged to be able to do was very quickly shift to offering telehealth. So even though the therapist may not have been um, able to be in the office and be in the center face to face with the clients, we were still able to provide services. So we were very fortunate to be one of the few organizations that never experienced a lapse in care because we were able to to make that shift and offer those online services.
0: When Ashley, you said you you saw the double amount of referrals, where were they coming from?
3: Well, a lot of them were self-referrals. And then some were where um, Georgia Crisis and Access Line, people were calling there when they acknowledged that they had a greater need and then they would come to us. Another interesting thing is that some of the private insurances during the pandemic had waived their co-pays. And when that happened, it eliminated one of those barriers to access. So they were getting increased referrals from the insurance companies. And then they were coming to us.
0: What does that say to you in terms of, and I'm not trying to put, get you all political here, but what does that say to you when we have the conversation, the greater conversation about uh, you know, the intersection of health care, mental health care, and then the financial barrier? If you just waive a copay and you have people just needing that seeking services.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think it definitely speaks to the disparity. It speaks to both the need. Um, for people to access these services and also the the need for us to make sure that we are eliminating those barriers. To that end, one of the things that we really try and do here at CRIS is always to have funds to support people who can't pay for their services. So whether you have private insurance, Medicaid, CMOs, or you're uninsured, we really do try to always have funding sources and ways that we can support people no matter what your financial statuses at that time.
0: And I want to just get some clarity for our listeners, and either you or Alfred can answer this. Did you all, were you all able to provide any prescription medications in the past? Or were you all able to still do that? Is that something that you do anyway?
3: So we have um, psychiatric services through our organization. And so the psychiatrists are absolutely able to continue um, with what they've been doing previously. And then we have a partnership in Atlanta through Mercy Care, where they're also able to provide medication and services.
0: And now I want to shift to another area, because not only dealing with the pandemic, but as Alfred alluded to with some of the violence, and we we know here in the Atlanta area, just talked about this yesterday, uh, the increase, the uptick in crime, if you will, that's how some folks put it. Alfred, what did you see on the side of town where you all are working um, was a lot of this related to the, the violence that's been taking place?
1: Um, I would say yes and no. Uh, and, and it's an it's ongoing conversation that we're always having. Um, by no means do I think that Cure Violence alone is um, provided a, a space to decrease violence. But I think it's a broader conversation, right? So we have a target area in MPUB where we serve and provide uh, wraparound supports to identify individuals who are living that extreme high-risk lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that on a larger scope of things, you know, when we look at the map of the city of Atlanta, um, we truly have seen an uptick in crimes on the north side. You know, there's a lot of things that's happening in the Lenox Square area, you know, mm-hmm. so, but on a larger scope, they group all of that together. Mm-hmm. I think we have to kind of look at policing programs like Cure Violence Atlanta and other collaborations that we have and, and wrap around partnerships that we have to provide services and supports for, for young people to kind of get them out of that lifestyle. So we have seen a small increase uh, between 2000, 2019 and 2020 in our target area but we've seen a larger increase overall within the city of Atlanta.
0: Let's dissect the Cure Violence program a little bit more because this is actually, the idea came from a program that was originated in Chicago. Is that correct?
1: That's correct. Um, So Cure Violence Global is based off in Chicago, um, started off as a ceasefire program. And this is one of the very opportunities where you have individuals with lived experience are used to kind of, address the social ills in terms of gun violence in these hot spots throughout the United States and abroad. So you all are going out into the community.
0: Are you asking people to come to gatherings? How are you getting this message to the folks in the community And, and, and particularly for those that you want to identify to be a part of this program? How do you all how do you first identify them? Then how do you get them to become part of the program?
1: So, again, we have um, positions, positions labeled violence interrupters. These individuals live, eat, play in the community. Once upon a time, they may have been drivers of violence. So, drivers of violence, no other drivers of violence. So, they have a face card, for lack of better terms, um, that's credible in, in these communities. So, I'm, I'm sorry about
3: that. It
0: happens, it's a um,
1: computer. <laughs> yeah, and... Um, so with Canvas in the neighborhood, you know, our, our violence interrupters have their ear to the streets. They, they know what's going on. They're uh, monitoring social media and seeing, you know, uh, trends and, mm-hmm. and following those trends. It leads us to an individual to be able to draw them in and at the very least have a conversation to talk, sit down and talk about our program.
0: Alfred, are you all able to assess? And I know that the, the program is getting launched here, but do you have metrics in place to assess the effectiveness of this, or if you just reach one or two, you know, cause sometimes that's key as well, as you know, how do you all
1: gauge this? Absolutely. We work very closely with Cure Violence Global. Um, they are a constant support for us. So they provide booster trainings and other supports to help um, essentially monitor, monitor the progress. It's one of those things too. Um, the things that don't get counted in the percentage is The violence that we stop. Mm -hmm. So um, it's just one of those things that we can't measure all the time. But I say as long as we know that we've stopped some some things from from happening and moving forward, it's a success for us.
0: And when you're in the community and you know you may not need a, a report or a survey to validate it, but when you're in the community, you know the difference. Others may not, but you know. If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Alfred Gard II. He's the director of the Zone 3 Community Initiatives and the manager of the Chris 180 Cures Violence Atlanta program. I'm also talking to Ashley Dennis-Silas. She's the clinical director for Chris 180s Counseling Center in Gwinnett. And, Ashley, you know, we know that with this pandemic, because of everything else that's tied to it, it could be job loss. It could be the death of a loved one. It could be just the stress of all of this. When you have these folks who are, who are reaching out, are you all able to quickly identify? Are your folks able to quickly identify that it is a symptom of anxiety and depression? And then are you all able to refer them to a counselor or somebody else if they need it? Is that how that works?
3: Yes. Yes, absolutely. So when they come in, um, in that first phone call, we're taking a referral. We're asking you what you're experiencing. And so that person is able to share what they're experiencing, what they need in their words, and then we then get them connected to um, to a counselor. Our goal is always to get an assessment within that same week that they call. So they're sitting down with a counselor Zoom uh, mm-hmm. with a counselor within um, that same week that they call and then are able to work on treatment plans and goals, but just very quickly to get them in to get them some to get them some support.
0: Absolutely. And you all—you all are able to service those communities where English may not be the primary language spoken in the home.
3: Yes, absolutely. That's one of the things that we're very proud of is that we do have several counselors on staff who are bilingual. We have some folks who speak multi um, languages, and we also have. Um, translation services. So if there's someone or a family who comes and they have um, need of a language that we do not have someone in-house for, we have access to a company that has hundreds of languages and they're able to provide translators. We've even been able to support um, families who are deaf or hard of hearing with services um, using translation
0: and since the kids have gone back to school, sort of kind of some virtually, some a little bit of a mixture of both, are you all are there other resources initiatives that you all have? Now, specifically, because for some families, for the household, it, it may not be the best option for the child to to go into the classroom. Are you all able to help them?
3: Well, we have and Alfred can probably speak to this really well. The at Promise Center and everything that they're able to offer specific to people in communities. But again, we have counselors who are connected to schools. And so we're able to meet with those families and youth and tailor programming for yeah. what the the needs of those families are.
0: Alfred, you wanna add anything?
1: Yeah, I definitely want to add a little bit of that. Uh, We definitely have school-based counseling program that's throughout schools in Atlanta public schools, Fulton, and I think a few Clayton County schools. Um, But we also have those virtual platforms on the West side, but also in Southeast Atlanta, uh, where our target area is. And uh, students are able to come in and be provided those educational supports with our uh, partners such as Urban League Boys and Girls Club, Raising Expectations. And we have tutors that's in there twice a week to be able to help them dial into the things that they haven't been able to while they've been trying to do school from home. So, you know, we have plenty of space for folks to be social distanced. You have to be, have your mask on every day, but that key piece is having somebody there making sure that you're logging on. And if you're having some challenges, you have tutors there and other supports to kind of help you. But also mental health is part of that transition too. So there's space in there for individualized and group therapy in these um, virtual platforms.
0: Ashley and Alfred, when you talk about all the resources that you all are able to provide, are there some resources that people reach out to you for that, quite frankly, y'all just can't do right now? Alfred, I'll, I'll let you go first.
1: Absolutely. It's just one of those things that, that you want to be able to help everybody but in order for us to best serve people we have to know where to draw the line in terms of our reach and our scope of services um i'll give you one example when we first started doing food distribution some kind of way my name you know and phone number became public knowledge so i was getting phone calls for food distribution but it was in clayton county and and, Mm coming in all these different places, but we just didn't have the reach and the capacity to be able to, you know, reach their needs. So it's important for us to still be able to guide them in a space to where you can get to somebody that can help you, but we just can't do it.
0: So from Clayton to coming?
1: I was getting phone calls from everywhere in the middle of the night, but that was the need. People, you know, was losing wages, losing jobs, and they weren't able to provide just a meal for themselves. So I was getting, somebody told me that my name and number was on United Way. I still don't know if that's true. Call, or not.
0: call Alfred because he, yeah. he got okay. it. Yeah, I mean, wow. What does that say to you, Alfred? Hmm.
1: It says a lot. It says, at the very least, in, in these communities, in these hot spots, mm-hmm. food is important, uh, services are important. And it makes me feel good about the work that we're doing. And hopefully we will expand our resources to those spaces one day so that we can help support folks and families.
0: Ashley, what about up in Gwinnett? Um, Services that people are seeking, but you all right now just can't do it or don't offer it.
3: I think the very similar experience to what Alfred was saying about um, food. We get a lot of calls about housing Um, And what we find is that some of the programming that is available in the Atlanta area, Winnett County has not allocated funds in, in that way. And so we definitely try to connect within our organization where we know those opportunities are, or where there aren't barriers around um, what community you live in to be able to access those funding, so we're trying to do that. And then we just we just search. Um, if they call, and even though I'm a therapist, if I answer the phone and somebody has a need, just because I'm used to researching, mm-hmm. I'm just going to search for them anyway. And we just do what we can. We um, we're connectors. So in addition to being therapists, we are we are connectors, and we try to support people in in any way that we can. So whether they are within the Chris 180 organization, or they just hear our names and know that we're people who can help. We just try to fill that need.
0: I imagine after this program, you all will probably get a a lot more folks. Ashley, what about specific services for our seniors, you know, those in our aging community? What do you all have for them?
3: Yeah, so we have counseling programs that really are tailored to whatever set of needs you have. So Mm -hmm. like I said, when people call in, regardless of their age. So if they are four or they are 94, when they call and they're able to um, articulate their need or not articulate it so well, we can um, hear what they have to say and get them and get them connected. Um, the C. And Chris stands for creativity.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So that is what we do really well. We hear what people are saying. Sometimes we hear what they don't say. And then we, within our network of resources, do the best that we can to tailor a program that's specifically for them. And that is regardless of age.
0: And as we wrap up, I'd like for you all, I opened up with asking you to reflect on just so far with this pandemic, but actually I'll start with you. And, you know, as we say goodbye and reflect on what this pandemic, it has amplified, or some would say has exasperated the already inequities and, and disparities that exist among so many of us in this nation. What do you want folks to know?
3: I, I think that is, that's definitely true. But what I see is so much of people helping other people. And that's, that's what I've really seen. That's been my, my great takeaway. I think that what we see is that people are there supports are there we are able to ramp up and connect to one another when we need to and that if we're if we're asking for help if we're acknowledging that we need help that those supports those supports are there and I think that's just such an such an important takeaway and Chris 180 is a place that you can find help and support I think that's just important to take away from this conversation.
1: Alfred I'll give you the last word on that. Uh, my takeaway is that there is value um, in pro- programs like Cure Violence Atlanta. program value in other programs, non-policing programs. Um, police isn't necessarily the answer to what we're seeing in our communities. Uh, folks need services, wraparound support so that they can be introduced to a different pathway. Um, I think we are in a position to continue to grow our program uh, when we see other hotspots throughout the city of Atlanta. Um, within a year, year and a half or so, we're gonna see other Cure Violence Atlanta programs.
0: Well, Alfred Garner II, the director of the Zone Three Community Initiatives and Manager of Chris 180's Cure Violence Atlanta program. Ashley Dennis Silas, the clinical director for Chris 180's Counseling Center in Gwinnett. Thank you both for being a part of this conversation. I really appreciate it. And thank you for the work that you're doing in the community. Thank you
3: so much for having us.
1: Thanks for having us.
0: And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As you know, schools not just here in Atlanta, but throughout the entire nation and maybe even around the globe, have all taken varied approaches to when and how to bring students back into the classrooms during this pandemic. Now, earlier this month, I spent time speaking with school leaders about their plans. But for students with special needs or those that have an individualized education plan, there are other factors to consider, as one parent told me last year.
1: You know, there's a reason why
3: uh, our kids have IEPs is to get that specialized instruction. And and we do realize that, you know, teachers are putting their best foot forward. But it's, it's just the nature of the situation. You know, he's not a virtual learner or a digital learner. Being in person having that multi-sensory aspect to it, Mm -hmm. um, you lose a lot of that. And, And so we are concerned. And just like over the summer, a break from a pandemic is a concern as well.
0: Now, in addition, we know the pandemic has also amplified existing inequities, particularly for students of Black and Hispanic families with students with special needs. Now Jennifer Sarrett is a Sarat is a lecturer at Emory University Center for the Study Study of Human Health, and her research focuses on education for students with special needs. And Dr. Sarrett joins me now. I believe returning to the program, great to have you again. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for having me. It's a joy to be speaking with you again. Let's begin here because I, I imagine for some folks, um, they may not think about how the pandemic, which obviously led to remote learning has been challenging in general for just students with special needs. Uh, Just for our listeners who may not quite grasp that, talk about some of those biggest challenges in general.
2: Well, a lot of kids with disabilities, students with disabilities in school have additional supports that range from having a full-time person alongside the student throughout the entire day to help them with anything from staying on task to um, holding a pencil to transitioning from one technology or one, I'm sorry, activity to the Mm -hmm. next to somebody who just checks in and gives maybe some speech therapy every once in a while, occupational therapy, things like that. Um, And so this level of need, a lot of these services are really challenging to translate into a digital environment and a virtual remote environment. And so I know a lot of parents are really struggling with you know, how to how to make sure that their child isn't losing skills. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the father that you just quoted or, or the, that we just listened to talked about over the summer. That's a huge concern for many parents. Mm-hmm. And the reason why a lot of students with disabilities go to summer school so that they don't lose all these skills. So I can just imagine
0: the stress that this pandemic is causing for the loss of skills. And that parent said, you know, my child is not a digital learner, not a Virtual learner, and I know this is not lost on you. So many families are grappling with that, uh, Doctor Satter. It is. I don't know if there's been a a report that suggests the best way to do this. And we're going to get later into data, but this is a challenge. That I don't know if any school district, unless you can tell us, or if there's a model out there that has at least you know been able to find some success during this pandemic with our students who require special with special needs. You know,
2: I'm not familiar with, there's there's not a whole lot of information about this out there, which is kind of what I said at the beginning oh, sorry, of my um, article that I published on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure of anything that's pandemic specific, but I will tell you that there is a style of education called universal design that is really designed to provide education in a way that most students can benefit from it at the same time. Mm-hmm. And this is a strategy that is designed after an architectural concept called universal design that emerged from the disability rights movement in the 80s and 90s. And is really about building spaces and places that the most amount of people can access most of the time. Mm-hmm. And there, and this tech or this strategy, this framework, which has seven main principles things like equity of use. Um, flexibility in use, tolerance for error, things like that, has been translated into the learning environment. And now we have universal design for learning. And so I think that if we had, uh, if our educators had more training on things like universal design, and how to employ it in person and virtually, Mm -hmm. we could really find some creative strategies that will help not only our students in special education classes and getting special education services, but all of our students.
0: Well, and then when we talk about those students who might require an individualized learning plan in general, but then particularly when we break that down to students in what we call our black and brown families, there may be some other barriers to remote learning. And let's just begin with access to connectivity. That's, that's probably the primary one right there. I mean, that, that is really true. We all can, you know, remember, think back to
2: the beginning of the pandemic when all of a sudden we were seeing all these images of students who didn't have access to Wi-Fi doing their schoolwork in libraries or sitting in parking lots in their cars, um, you know, getting the Wi-Fi from the Starbucks or whatever the case may be. And this is going to be even more difficult if you have a student who has sensory needs, for example, and and can't. Um, It it needs uh, to be in a particularly quiet place or sit in a particular way or Mm -hmm. something like that, or a student that has attentional deficits and then has all these um, distractions going on with people coming in and out and sounds, it just, you know, adds an additional layer of complexity and difficulty onto not having access to uh, things like Wi-Fi, mm-hmm. and then a lot of the recommendations that are out there for students who are getting special education services are things that simply aren't financially accessible to a lot of families, particularly Black and Brown families. Things like having two tablets, mm-hmm. for example.
0: Yeah, you're you're absolutely right on that. And, and Dr. Sarah, to hear something else, because if you want to. Say okay, well, the digital divide is one aspect, but then let's understand this too. This virus is disproportionately affecting the same communities you and I are having this conversation about, and then also too, perhaps the parent or parents they are also frontline workers, or they're workers who are having to go to work, so they can't be at home. So there's another barrier, or they are a caregiver, but perhaps that parent or grandparent cannot be in the home, or maybe they are, or in the same household. And if one person contracts this virus, then that's a whole nother set of of issues that can compact a family. All this is part of sort of what you've been hitting at. we're going to get to your article in a moment, but that's at the core of what you're talking about.
2: Yeah, it's a perfect storm of factors to increase disparities in black and brown families. So we have higher rates of disability um, and uh, particularly African-American and Native American children and adults. Uh, We have higher rates of COVID in those communities as well. Mm -hmm. And we have more adults in those communities needing to work outside of the home um, and, and not being able to help their children with online learning in the way that, you know, other families that do have support at home are able to do. So all of that just layers on and, you know, the Uh, you know, challenges and ensuring that a child's education has been continuous and of good quality.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Sarich. She's a lecturer at Emory University Center for the Study of Human Health. And we're talking about this pandemic's impact on special education industry, particularly for Black and brown families. And I have a question here from a listener who says, are there any students who do benefit from additional at-home resources resources? or remote learning, and I don't know if they mean special edu- students with special needs, but is there, I guess maybe it's unfair to say that all students with special needs aren't benefiting, but I imagine there are some who are. Yeah, absolutely. I remember
2: back when I was, um, I used to work um, in special education as a direct care provider and educator, and I had a high schooler who was on the autism spectrum, and he really struggled with in-person schooling because it was too slow for him. He didn't see the homework as being um, necessarily helpful. He saw it was redundant, so he wouldn't mm-hmm. do it. And so he ended up going um, and switching to a virtual learning format that he could do at his own speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, thinking about, you know, the shifts in relation to disability to things like online learning and even virtual work, there's a group of people with disabilities who say, this is great. I've been asking for these kinds of accommodations for a long time. That when my you know my disability means that I can't leave the house, then I can still do, you know, reach my task and do things like that. But then there's a whole bunch of people with disabilities for whom this shift of technology isn't actually working out mm-hmm. that great. So people with, for example, hearing impairments. Zoom now has automatic closed captioning, which is great. But if you have what's called the deaf accent, it doesn't really pick up on that accent. So it can't really caption you. Mm. So there are, you know, challenges to, um, you know, that are that are introduced. But, yeah, there are some students who might be really thriving in this environment.
0: I want to read a quote from the piece that you authored. And and if folks want to check it out, we'll have a link on our website. But it's from the piece titled COVID-19 Deepens Structural Inequities in American Special Education. And you write, quote, Data on various components in the relationship between COVID-19 and the outcomes for black and brown students with disabilities is not conclusive. Now, does that also mean a lack of data and research at this intersection of our black and brown families and in, in special education needs? Is that what you're talking about? So there's not enough data out there to even for you all to know how to fix the problem. Is that what you're saying? It's, yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. So I'm not a researcher, I written, so I hope my definition <laughs> was somewhat made <laughs> Yeah, sense. get on it,
2: researchers, come on. Uh, no, I, you know, when, so I had re- uh, written a, a previous piece on intersectionality in the school-to-prison pipeline for Impactor, and then they approached me for writing this piece, and so I'm like, oh, great, I'm going to go and find this data, and everywhere I looked, I would find pieces of the puzzle, but not the entire picture, so I could get rates on COVID and race or um, disability and race, or um, COVID and race in school. But, you know, nothing gave me this picture of what is going on with parents um, in who have students in special education who are of racial minorities and living in poverty. And I even went on my social media and I was like, hey, you know, disability people, do you know what's going on? And and a lot of people responded like, no, we we don't have the data. And that's, that's a problem. Like if we don't, if we don't know what the problem is, it's really hard to create sustainable, feasible solutions. Um, and so, I find that the 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 piece of the puzzle that's often missing is disability status. People mm-hmm. kind of, when they collect demographics, do race, gender, poverty, education,
0: but disability is often left out. Do the if we're talking about the school K through 12 here, public mm-hmm. education, shouldn't some of that information be available? Do the, do the school districts? I mean, not that you would want to label every child, but I imagine for those schools and districts that receive federal funding, they have to have some of this data, correct? There
2: is data about um, students in special education and their profiles and things like that, but I haven't been able to find any COVID-specific mm-hmm. data on what's happening with this population since the pandemic and the shift to online learning. So we can we know how many students are in special education. We know their breakdown by race and gender and geography and things like that. But how many students are getting, for example, able to access their um, remote services in terms of things like occupational therapy or speech therapy, or mm-hmm. how many students are able to go into the classroom every once in a while for services um, and how many students aren't um, what are the requests from parents? What are the, you know, strategies that are being used that information? I just haven't been able to find.
0: Well, I'm not a solutions person, but sounds like you need to get with a researching. I need to get a good grant writer. That's uh, exactly right. (laughs) Let's get this (laughs) information. Call me, Grant writers. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, email the doctor here. Um, This week, the Biden administration informed states they may not cancel standardized tests because of the pandemic. And our own state superintendent, I believe Richard Woods, has spoken out against this. Mm -hmm. Um, As we talk about this and students with special needs, through your lens, good, bad, indifferent, but there are so many other problems that perhaps this is not at the top of the list through your lens? Tell me.
2: Yeah, I, you know, I generally have concerns about standardized testing writ large. Um, I think we had a vast increase in standardized testing once No Child Left Behind was implemented. And the consequences of that has been that students aren't being taught in the same way that they were before. There's lots Mm -hmm. of teaching to these standardized tests. Um, And an an overemphasis on these. Um, And I think that they take away from the ability for teachers to be really creative with their curriculum, which is, again, in line with that universal design of learning uh, process, specifically standardized tests in, in COVID. I think that the reasons why we are not canceling them is probably because people want to see the impact that COVID is having on learning. Our kids, Mm -hmm. you know, compared to this time last year, what are the fourth graders learning and what do they know? And is it less? And if so, is that because of the pandemic? So I see kind of how that could be useful. Um, But again, I, you know, I have, we have children in our home and, you know, it just seems like I really wish that there was more attention to the topics that they're learning and figuring out how to create better engagement and excitement in this virtual situation than another standardized test.
0: And Dr. Sarrett, for these students that we're talking about, these students with special needs, and, and they don't want to end our conversation, uh, you know, we want to end on a happy note, but I want to ask you this in terms of, you know, what are the pro- what are some of the potential outcomes? For many of these students, and we're already headed into March for this school year. I not sure what's going to happen in the summer, but uh, what concerns you the most about this population of our of our students if they're not getting the 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 resources they they need?
2: Well, we already have um, a lot of achievement gaps in our student populations. So those achievement gaps are by disability, by race and by poverty, which are all interrelated and and intersectional. So we know that kids of color, Um, have less educational attainment than white kids. A lot of the times that's because they're living in poor districts, school districts, and they have worse resources. Mm -hmm. That's where a lot of our students with disabilities are. A lot of our students with disabilities are in um, places that they don't get a lot of good services and resources already and so having this shift to virtual learning and and the i mean kudos to all of the teachers by yeah. the way because you have done an amazing job this i teach at emory and it's i know how challenging it is i couldn't imagine teaching a second grader yeah. in this format um so i know that everybody's doing the best they can but the the possible consequence is that these achievement gaps are going to be growing even more, particularly for kids with disabilities, particularly for kids with disabilities of color, particularly for kids with disabilities of color living in poverty. So there's, you know, it's, and there's going to have to be some sort of a catch up. And so I think if we take an equity lens to our education and getting back into school and seeing which students need additional supports in order to, you know, close that gap,
0: is gonna be a really good solution to looking ahead. I tell you, there's the intersection of equity and education for parents out there, and I know you can't answer, everyone has a a different and unique story, but for parents who are listening, uh, for students with special needs and particularly students of color with special needs, what resources can they access now?
2: Well, you know, actually the um, Department of Education has come out with some interesting resources. There is a um, fact sheet on how to address COVID-19 and some recommendations. Mm-hmm. I also saw, and um, I can send you some links about some legal questions about um, how IEPs and things like that, that you can put on your website that because one of the problems is that parents don't know what they don't know. Mm-hmm. And when I was a special educator, there were times when it was implied that I don't tell parents what their rights were. And I know that parents living in poverty, parents of color often don't know what their rights are. And so knowing your rights is is a good way to start um, and just forgiving yourself and being patient with yourself and your children and your children's teachers and recognizing that, that you know. You know that that this is a difficult time. I think is is the way to go. But um, if you are able to to kind of read up on your rights and and use that as a platform, you know, in special education, a lot of times, unfortunately, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. So um, that's kind of the system we're working with right now.
0: And folks, you sometimes feel like maybe their voice is not being heard because they have no one who's advocating for them. Dr. Jennifer Serrett is a lecturer at Emory University. Center for the Study of Human Health. As always, Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for a good, good conversation. Information that we hope can help people. Thank you for taking the time.
2: Thank you for having me. This is this is great.
0: And that's it for this edition of Closer Look, which is produced by Grace Walker and LaShawn Hudson. Our engineer is Kevin Rinker. If you missed any of today's program, it's all online at wabe.org closerlook And of course, Closer Look weeknights at 8 p.m. As well as our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like because it will be there. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice Friend PR As always, I'm Rose Scott.